Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Gene Sullivan. Gene is a general partner at Arcview Venture Fund, which is a leader in the cannabis space. And among many things, she's also an experienced technology venture capitalist. Forbes once cited her as one of the top women VCs changing the world. And there's no doubt about her passion and tenacity. She speaks about cannabis and finance to audiences around the globe. From stages at South by Southwest to keynotes at conferences like MJ Biz, she's got a wealth of information and experience to share. I'm excited to have her on the show. In our discussion, we got into many of the issues entrepreneurs are facing and what she's seen with the changing political and regulatory landscape in the US. Now, surely this podcast wouldn't be complete without some finance talk. So we got into how you should be articulating your business opportunity, as well as finding capable advisors and how to compensate them for their contributions. It was a great pleasure to have Gene on and I'm sure you'll enjoy. On the line, I have Gene Sullivan. Uh, Gene, thanks so much for joining us. It's uh, I've been very much looking forward to this interview, especially with the background that you have. You've got a remarkable career in finance, in uh, the world of, of large corporate endeavors, and now a pioneer in the cannabis space with ArcView. And the list goes on. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be here and talk about a very vibrant sector, and that's the cannabis industry. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I um, well, th- there's so many places we can go with this. Uh, so what I what I like to do is kick off with a bit of background about yourself, a bit of an elevator elevator pitch, and share with us uh, what's got you excited. So what's fun to share is that I'm a longtime venture capital investor, co-founder of a New York-based fund, all tech. But in 2014. I rolled off my fund. Now, notice I don't use the word retire. I say rewire, refire, because I got plenty of juice left. I got lots of energy and curiosity for learning. So something happened that was major in 2014 in New York State. New York passed the Compassionate Care Act. That opened the door for medical marijuana licenses to be issued in the state. And we, meaning my husband and I, became investors in one of the first licenses here. Now, New York has 20 million people, but only 10 10 licenses were issued over the last few years. Five the first year, and then the next year, another five. This is amazing because we have so many people and other states with far fewer people, have many, many licenses. So a New York license means you can, it's vertically integrated, you can grow, extract, and you get four dispensaries. I said, hey, I better learn this business. Well, what a time for us all. There's so far, so many things we can talk about cannabis. Uh, How's that, how's that been? I mean, you've taken a 
a great finance career, which I want to get into, but now in the Canada space, what is well, what has this been like? What's the Wild West like? Well, Corey, here is the fun and funny part. I gave my kids hell when they used, I've never really been for it, the stigma and the war on drugs has been upon my brain for most of my life. Sure, I tried it in college and all, but I really didn't believe it was so great, nor did I ever understand what I understand now. And here's the message. The stigma was laid upon us, and it was really for reasons that have nothing to do with health or wellness. Do you know, in the United States, THC, which is one of the cannabinoids, and I'll address that in a minute, is a Schedule One drug. Do you know what Schedule One means? No health benefits. So I said, I better learn this stuff. And I started to go to the conferences to learn about the science, the technology, and certainly around the really draconian social justice issues. I learned what? We still arrest 700,000 people every year. That's in the U.S. And much of that just for possession. What? We have people in jail. We have people with felonies that can't even vote again for possession. I'm not talking about heavy drug dealing. I'm talking about possession. I became appalled at this. But because I've been a longtime investor, I saw the economic upside right away. I rode that technology wave, and I said, I am riding this wave. And what got you into it? I mean, you having that background, that has to be of some form of even perception or ethical challenge you went through. So what happened was by understanding the fact pattern, it opened my eyes to really some of the lies that have been spread for really more than 100 years in the U.S. And we didn't have the leadership like Canada with Justin Trudeau understanding it could be bring wellness and wealth and opportunity to Canada. Canada, as you know, Corey, they're the world leader in this industry. That's pretty exciting. It's amazing to me that the U.S., with our wealth, with our smarts, with our scientists, we are the laggards right now. And I saw that. I learned that by going to the big conferences. One of the most amazing conferences last year had 28,000 people. It happens in Las Vegas. And it's fascinating with a 1,000 vendors. So I started to go to the conferences. And because I'm one of the few women who are classically trained as an investor, I was asked to speak. So in order to speak, you have to know what you're talking about, right? So I had to learn. And the more I learn, the more I realize this is an amazing wave of opportunity and wellness and time to fix a lot of the bad stuff about the stigma. And that got me over. And I realized how important this was. Now, I, I want to get into your work as a woman in, in the world of finance, because I think that's a really interesting thing we can speak about. Um, but before that, can we talk about some of those things? I mean, we can, the history of prohibition, uh, I would argue, has never really been about, oh, it's bad for you. It's been people protecting interests and, uh, and, and false facts that are out there, uh, falsehoods that are out there about uh, THC and CBD and so on. What have you learned about that? What can you share, us, share with us about that? <laughs> 
there's no doubt you do know that cannabis as well as hemp has been in existence and use going way back i'm seeing history lessons that say as far back as 8000 bc in china you do know that our farmers in the 1700s were commanded in most of the colonies to grow hemp and by the way if you looked at a hemp plant and a marijuana plant, they come from the same species. So they virtually look alike. Now, some have been bred to be more industrial and are taller, little different look, but it is all the same look and feel. But hemp over time has been bred to have less than 0.3% of THC. That's one of those cannabinoids. And so what happened was uh, the... U.S. decided early on, as early as 1906, a series of what's been called poison acts and poison laws came into existence. In fact, one of my wonderful business owner friends has a chocolate company called 1906 for that very reason. But in 1937, it really became bad. And one of the first really uh, heads of what became the FDA and DEA got into the act and passed the Marijuana Tax Act. This really disrupted the marketplace and it really changed the game so that the stigma began. And that's even when the Reefer Madness movie was funded to really perpetuate the stigma. So all this happened and then a lot of laws in the US. Well, let me tell you what's, what the uh, result was. Even other countries, like Japan, Europe, China, Canada, they followed suit of the U.S. of believing that this cannabis world was bad no matter what. And the science and the research had not even been done. And so it perpetuated. And then Nancy Reagan, God lover, promoted the war on drugs, which actually became a war on the science and the research. And so that just continued and continued. And even on John Ehrlichman's deathbed, who was one of Nixon's main guys, he admitted it was just a cheap excuse to arrest hippies. Hmm. And let's face it, it had roots in racist overtones because people from Mexico were using it. And so most of us in the business don't even use the word marijuana. We use the scientific name cannabis. And so there's been a lot of racist overtones, and there still are. When I realized all that, certainly time for change. So that's some of the brief history. But then let me tell you what happened. The center of research is actually in Israel today. And Dr. Raphael Meshulam, an incredible, brilliant scientist who I've had the opportunity to meet, was the first one to ever really discover what is now known as the endocannabinoid system. So let me tell you just a tiny bit about that, just mm -hmm. so you know. This plant is rich with something called cannabinoids. And over about 140 cannabinoids have really been discovered. The two most popular you know already, and that's THC and CBD. And so THC is the cannabinoid that does give you a high or can if you have too much of it. And CBD, which you know is ever popular in today's world, uh, does not. And even though it might have a little bit of THC, as I said earlier. So what's happened is, and this was 50 years ago, 
uh, Dr. Mashulam understood that this could create some wellness. And here's why. The, our body is filled with these various receptors in this endocannabinoid system. But do you know what? These cannabinoids go to different receptors than, let's say, an opioid would. And the ca cannabinoids in cannabis do not control breathing or heart rate function. And so all this is new to be learned about and to be explored, of which the U.S. has really prohibited a lot of that research, which is just very uh, disdainful. And now that's just starting up, because wouldn't it be great to be able to cure some illnesses? And there are some illnesses that these cannabinoids absolutely can affect and change. So that's the exciting part about the science and now the technology that's behind this plant. So th th there's an interesting connection there. And this is what I'm, I'm often hearing on the market uh, or on the street, if you will, is that cannabis is going to medical. But we could, we could tie back into uh, I mean, back into the day with uh, William Randolph Hearst, who who uh, was lobbying against cannabis. You could tie into um, numerous different organizations, including the the alcohol industry, who were lobbying against cannabis and and making it you know quote unquote illegal for so many reasons. Is that same thing going to happen with big pharma against cannabis? Well, it's already happened, but believe me, both the alcohol industry and Big Pharma are absolutely playing and can hardly wait to have products, uh, both medicinal and, let's say, adult-use products in the marketplace. They understand clearly what's going on. And already, a lot of action and dollars have been put forward by big alcohol. I'm sure you're well aware that 5 billion Canadian was invested in the largest LP licensed processor canopy growth mm -hmm. in Canada. That made big news last year. And why is that? Because they know that alcohol is more harmful than cannabis. And also, drinking non-alcoholic beverages is a very socialized kind of thing. People want to sit around and eat together, drink together. And if you can drink something that does create, let's say, wellness, or for many, let's say, a high feeling, they know that's attractive. So believe me, there's many, many companies right now producing non-alcoholic beers, non-alcoholic spirits. So here's a fun story related. Mm -hmm. I got to go to Israel last year. It was my first time. It was thrilling. That's how I got to meet Dr. Meshulam and some of the great scientists in Israel doing this research. And I hopped on one of the buses and I sat down and I said, who are you? And he said, I'm the guy who did the Constellation Brands deal with Canopy Growth. And he explained to me that they were the only beverage company in the world that has wine, beer, and spirits. So why not fund the fourth category, which is cannabis? And so I have come to believe and absolutely adopt the fact that non-alcoholic beers and spirits are here to stay. They're not fully ready for market yet. Some are in the market. There is a lot of consideration around taste. I've tried most all of them, 
seeking something that's attractive on taste, and also what happens to you as far as, let's say, the effect. So there's an issue. Think about it. And it's called uh, bioavailability. What's the onset time, which sometimes takes longer for things that you drink or eat? And what's the offset time? Because it wouldn't be so great to sit in some kind of a consumption lounge, which, by the way, is happening, drink, let's say, a cannabis beer, have it come on you slowly, and then you want to get in your car and drive, and it hasn't rolled off. So mm -hmm. there's lots of issues around that that need to be solved. But let me take you to another interesting part of this business that ties back to my being a longtime tech investor. Mm -hmm. I am literally astonished and shocked at the low level and primitive level of technology that exists today for cultivators in the extraction world, in these dispensaries. It's very primitive. And here's why the big tech companies who have best practices uh, platforms didn't play. They might just be starting to play, but the stigma has been upon these companies too. Oh no, our shareholders and our lawyers won't let us serve cannabis kinds of customers. So a lot of these platforms, I'm talking about CRM, customer relationship management, ERP, enterprise resource planning, even payroll systems, get that, hmm. and other very normal technology platforms that run all the companies that we know today did not play and still aren't playing. So a lot of these platforms had to be reinvented. So this is amazing. But look, Corey, that's where the opportunity is for investing in these privately held companies, some of which are now going public. And so that exists. But another parallel I love sharing. What's going on today in cannabis is identical to those early days of tech. I know I was there in those early days. I saw it. I rode that wave, and as I've said, I am riding this wave. And here's what the parallels are. Early stage companies, investors throwing money at it, big valuations, entrepreneurs who don't know what they're doing but do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I so respect that. I'm amazed by that. And so there's so many parallels, pricing models that aren't figured out. Uh, distribution topologies that are far from figured out. There are some examples. It's it's so true. You know, it's um, you could say that there's there's a playbook that happened with uh, the dot com run in the late nineties and early two thousands, and and that seems to be getting replicated in ways here. And uh, you make an interesting point though that uh, these periphery industries. You know, something as simple as a, as a CRM or a payroll management right. system that has been effectively restricted from, from the industry opens up so many opportunities for small companies. And somebody I well respect and was on the podcast is Tyler Stewart of Greenacre Capital. Sure. And he's spent a lot of time focusing on these periphery businesses, the, the picks and shovels uh, of the gold rush uh, as, instead of the gold. What, what's, what's fascinating there, and this is um, like when you speak about entrepreneurs who, who are shooting from the hip and, and in many ways don't know what they're doing, I want to spin that in and get your take on finance. You've 
been on the side of the table where you've written checks into these companies. And some of these entrepreneurs will perhaps not even really understand what a capitalization table or a cap table is or understand what the terms they're getting into. Can we, can we dive into some of that? Because I mean, that's, you can make or break a company with the, the finance events that, that happen. Corey, you're so right. The entrepreneurs who would get the wallet out of our pocket in tech, the same theories prevail. You have to know what to do and how to do it. You've got to be able to understand the numbers. You've got to understand the capitalization needs of the business. You've got to understand who to hire and who to fire and what kind of functional needs you need in the business in order to drive it forward. What's your go-to-market strategy? Can you articulate it? Do you know, Corey, that's one of the number one mistakes that entrepreneurs make. They need to understand how to package their company. Where are they going? What is it? What's a great description? Who is their target market? What is the size of that market? And how can they capture it? Those are some of the elements that great business owners and entrepreneurs do articulate and do know how to then get the wallet out of our pockets as investors. And, and it's, I'm, I'm in awe of those entrepreneurs and business owners who know how to do that. And I've had the lucky chance to be at the table with some of those greats. It's pretty exciting. Well, no kidding. No kidding. Especially uh, uh, for the ones that became you know, solid wins and helped, uh, helped move your fund and, uh, and your investments forward. A question that just came to mind was, in every meeting you had leading up to an investment, you, you would, would have felt very similar feelings of, this is going to be a win. And you would have had very similar, uh, I think, rational arguments and, and economic arguments of why it could be a win. But not all of those investments would have been wins. What would be the difference between the winners and losers when you look back and reflect on that? It's really about one thing. It's about execution. And also, I love to tell the story. Bill Gross, who was the founder of Idea Labs back in the GoGo era, studied his hundreds of companies that he invested in that were early stage. And there was one critical metric that made a difference. You know what it was? Timing. Your mm. timing has to be right. I've invested in companies that were fabulous companies with actually terrific CEOs who were more than capable, but the timing wasn't right. And I use a line for that. Sometimes you think you're in on the ground floor, you find out you're in the basement. So <laughs> early, early, I was part of some fabulous Silicon Valley companies that there was no way they were going to happen. And they did happen then 10 years later. Unfortunately, we were long out because just the way the venture capital world works, you don't have that kind of luxury most of the time. So the ability to execute, to be precise on timing, serving a market need, and knowing how to capture that customer. Boy, that's critical. Hmm. <clears throat> now, the, the simple saying goes, you can never time the market. Can you time your your execution of a business for the investors who came in or for the the uh entrepreneurs who came to you and and still come to you with uh arcview what are they saying that, that you're looking and going i think they've got the right timing sure 
first of all, experience counts. So seasoned entrepreneurs and business owners who have done it before, that counts a lot. Because then they're not making a mistake on your nickel. They might have made it on someone else's nickel. So that's critical. Second of all, knowledge. The successful entrepreneurs and CEOs, they have knowledge. Certainly there's some luck in there. The luck of getting investments early to build the business, of hiring the right kind of people around the table. So a lot of that is at play. But I believe that some of the smartest business owners and CEOs, they understand clearly the gap they are filling. Maybe it's a gap that some of those great companies need. And even today, there have now been hundreds of M&A transactions in the cannabis industry filling a gap that one of those larger companies, and guess what, your wonderful countrymen in Canada that are acquiring like crazy. They want to bring great brands that have been developed in the U.S. up to Canada because now Canada has allowed these brands to come onto the marketplace, especially the edibles and drinkables, starting officially in October and then on the shelves, or let's say by mail, which is such a brilliant way to receive products, by December 17th of this year. So uh, Canadian LPs are coming into the U.S. to look for those brands and some smart groups because they know what's working in the U.S. and they want to serve their marketplace. Plus, Canada has been able to export products to other countries that can receive cannabis products. So that's an example of what's going on in the marketplace where smart CEOs know how to build and connect with those acquirers to bring those products forward. Isn't that exciting? It's pretty it, neat. It, it really is. And, um, you know, there's, there's some pride that, that, uh, that I have in, in our country for, for having moved an industry forward. Leaders of the world. Oh, that's that's really nice cool. to hear. Exciting. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, I think there's uh, you know always a worry that uh, that we will soon be eclipsed by the U.S. But I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff there. In fact, you know, why don't we go back to talking about the U.S. and and some of the uh, like each state has got unique laws. Uh, I've heard some funny stories about things that have happened. You know, between let's say California and New, New York and New Jersey, and all of a sudden you've got places like. Ohio and uh, in Kentucky, which you get some funny things happening. So where are we at? What's the state of the union? Well, it's pretty shocking. And it's hard to believe because you cannot tell me any other products that are in the same situation. Each state, as you said, can make up their own laws and rules to control the product. So now, 33 states have either some form of medical or we call it adult use. We don't like to call it rec or recreational because we really don't want kids using THC products. Mm. Even scientifically, the frontal cortex of the brain isn't fully formed. Let's face it, a lot of kids do use, but we're hopeful not for heavy use because it could affect. Uh, that's on THC, and I've been doing the research, and I do believe that CBD does appear fairly safe. 
But what's going on is that right now there's a movement afoot for two big laws in the U.S. that are important and they are going to happen. One is called the Safe Banking Act. So we also have these silly, silly rules where it's made it hard, not impossible, for banks to take deposits of plant-growing companies. Uh, they are less fearful about taking what's called ancillary businesses, which mean non-plant touching, so like the tech platforms or testing or that sort of thing. Right. Uh, actually, banks can take deposits and do business, but there's a very heavy, what's called AML-KYC, set of rules and compliance laws. Any money laundering and KYC, know your customer. So we at ArcView have a federally chartered bank because they know how to do that kind of compliance. And so that makes it easy uh, for us to do business. Could and you share that name? Because in fact, I know a couple of companies who we've we've ran into some pretty hard issues, and I mean they don't they don't take it lightly. They just close you down. Yes, they do. It's really bad. Our bank is a wonderful bank in San Francisco called the Bridge Bank. But let me tell you what most of the world in the U.S. has had to do, and actually Canada is also affected a lot by this because they have correspondent banks in the U.S. But things are lightening up a bit on that, and so. There's many, about 70 to 100 state and local banks, community banks, that are able to take deposits and do business with cannabis companies because they don't have that federal charter. But here's the good news. The Safe Banking Act does have bipartisan support. And who doesn't want safe banking? So let's give the banks a comfort feeling that they're not going to lose their rights or their charter if they do business. And it looks like that will go through. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. for NCIA, which is the large trade association for cannabis. And we had more than 250 people lobbying uh, congressional staffers as well as Senate staffers. And we're looking for more than 300 votes in the House to support this bill. And it looks like it is going to go through. Now, in the Senate, there's still a majority of Republicans, and they are fighting this bill, but we believe that will pass and create a safety zone. Mm. But then here's the more exciting bill that will happen also, I believe, before the 2020 election. It's called the States Act, and it will allow states to create the laws that they wish to create. So if you don't want to pass a law allowing adult use in Idaho or in Kentucky, you don't have to. And so that will allow the states to create those laws and, and also to feel some protection about creating that. Now, if you want to have a little fun, I can see the future. So I know what's going to happen down the road. Okay. This, this is definitely debatable, but you, here it comes. Yeah, yeah, bring it. Okay. So we have this uh, guy in the White House, and uh, he knows this could help him. And so I believe that he will help make the States Act happen, and that's going to really create favor. And he really doesn't want the Democrats to have their hands on that. So he wants to really own that ability because he knows. Do you know that, that in the U.S., 
93% of the people favor, especially if a physician is involved with medical cannabis, and it's polling more than 63% favor. So that's a positive sign mm. to uh, the White House people. And also, I believe he knows, and you know who I'm speaking about. <laughs> Bill, I, I, I decide to keep politics out of this podcast, so no yeah, names. Good for you. <laughs> so, so I'm in, in the same boat. And so he knows that people favor that. So I believe that THC will be pulled off of Schedule 1, and it should be pulled off Schedule 1. Recall, I told you it means no health benefits in any way. We already know there are health benefits that, uh, that really create wellness. Uh, Crohn's disease, uh, that's why Epidiolex did have the first U.S. FDA clearance and clinical trial. Here is a U.K. company when we have many, many big pharma companies. And what happens, a U.K. company gets the first FDA approval Epidiolex can really curtail and end epilepsy mm. in kids. This is a good thing. We need these kinds of products. Uh, Crohn's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, even migraines can be helped by these kinds of products. And, of course, many, many other diseases that could be fixed or at least pain alleviated. We already know if you break your leg, you might need an opioid for the first couple days, maybe a week, but you don't need an opioid for six months. So these kinds of products can relieve pain. So what? No health benefits? Come on. People realize that this is completely crazy. And it was on there for reasons we've already talked about that have nothing to do with wellness. So I'm really in favor of changing the game and changing the stigma that exists. And let's do the research. Let's, let's go into that a little bit. Yeah, you know, okay. the FDA and the DEA are two big uh, groups, government groups in the U.S. that are overseeing. And now that CBD is really a big deal and on a lot of shelves, I even saw today that you know, major supermarkets in the U.S. are going to be carrying CBD. Already, CVS and Walgreens are planning to carry. But the DEA <clears throat> is very involved in overseeing this. And they've started their first reviews May 31st of this year. And they promise to have more insight. You know, nobody wants delays, but let's face it. Some of these CBD products don't even have CBD in them. Some haven't even been tested. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to ingest or use or use on your family products that have heavy metals or grown with pesticides. So I do favor some regulation. In fact, those of us in the business say, let's regulate and tax these products like alcohol. Now, do you find that the FDA and the DEA are, how, how swayed are they with the politics? Uh, and again, no names, but with, where do you see that going with the future of that? I mean, is it, is it something that is administration specific or yeah, what, what does that look like with the FDA and DEA? You're right to say that they are swayed and a lot of those appointments are political, 
But because it's polling so strongly and because people have direct benefit and they're hearing those stories, the research and the science is becoming more known and more predominant. There's some research uh, studies that are well underway by major hospitals and research groups in the U.S. So those kinds of activities are creating the breakthroughs we need and want. Hmm. Now, from that, I mean, this is what I've been hearing, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, that we're, we're moving big into medical, uh, into the world of medical cannabis. Going beyond that, what do you see as some of those hot sectors for investment? Yes. So let me expand uh, your words that you use from just medical. We see actually a three-tiered approach that will happen, and it's already happening. <clears throat> there are going to be the strict kind of pharma drugs, like you're seeing with Epidiolex. So we're going to see more and more of those coming from big pharma that have specific fixes for specific illnesses. And I say, bring it on. And you'll only be able to get those at a pharmacy with a real, let's say, prescription. Today, uh, cannabis physicians don't really write prescriptions. They're called recommendations. And so that is for medical uh, dispensaries that exist in the U.S. and up till recently in Canada, up till last year in Canada. Those are only from dispensaries where you have this written recommendation. And it's for, let's say, certain types of, of products with certain potency levels of this THC. But then there's going to be this whole world uh, of uh, over-the-counter and adult use. Now, already in Canada, I think you know how it works, being Canadian. You go online, and you can order whatever you want, and it comes by mail. And as you know, certain provinces can decide the distribution methodology. Mm -hmm. So in the Maritimes and in Ontario, shop, uh, that's where... The Liquor Control Board is involved. And I learned, because I was just in Vancouver, and we go to Toronto often, that this is not in liquor stores, but in separate uh, buildings yep. that, that offer these kinds of products. And then the other provinces, it's through Shoppers Mart. So if, let's say, you're in a province where you can order from Shoppers Mart, you just click it online, and it's mailed to you. How brilliant is that? In the U.S., it's a whole different ballgame. You touched on this briefly, but this is like the height of ridiculousness. <laughs> You've invented the greatest product in California. You cannot ship that or send that to New York if it's got THC in it. And last year in the U.S., we passed what's called the Farm Bill, as you know, and that did allow products to be shipped but it still is in the gray zone. And that's where I mentioned earlier that the FDA is involved in these kinds of products, trying to straighten out the rules and make them more black and white. And they've promised that within the next several months. But it's all over the place, leaving companies very uncertain, you know, how to operate. But back to the THC, that is very clear. You cannot ship a THC-laden product, more than 0.3% across state lines. This is utterly crazy. Hmm. 
really, so each state, let's say you have a great product, you again uh, developed in the state of California. You would have to go to Nevada, which is what's happening, if you wanted to stand up or recreate that product under your own license or someone else's license in the state of Nevada. Mm. So this has created fiefdoms, craziness, and you know it's really pretty goofy. Uh, what's happened though, if you're following the U.S., is this monopoly board kind of play has happened, where it's called MSOs, standing for multi-state operators, have come about over the last few years. So these license holders in one state have gone and acquired or created or applied for a license in another state. And some of these MSOs own many, many licenses in multiple states. So let's say that allows a little bit easier uh, development of some of these products because you have to follow these um, SOPs, they're called, Standard Operating Procedures and recreate that product in a different state. But now you've got the license to do so. So a lot of craziness is going on. And unlike the brilliance of Canada, where you could ship a product from Vancouver to Nova Scotia, we don't have that luxury, at least not yet. And any, any view on a timeline? When do you see that changing? And what? Uh... So <clears throat> the States Act is going to open the door a little bit even some states like Oregon have started to develop uh, state laws that are trying to allow them to ship their oversupply to California. Now, that hasn't happened yet, but they're trying to make that happen. Okay. But the full-on ability, like Canada, to ship from one coast to the other, that's probably not going to happen for several more years. But it is going to loosen up. And in fact, it's really going to blow open the doors from an investing standpoint over the next year, I believe. This is my prediction uh, to allow the States Act, which is really going to make things a lot more palatable and a little bit less friction on the product side. So that's what's going to happen. Wow. Okay. I know. Uh, it's, yeah, there's so much, so many paths we <laughs> I can know, go. I know. Um, let me pick up a couple threads that you asked about already. First, you asked earlier, but I didn't answer it yet, about being a woman in the business. Yeah, let's go there. I, there's, yeah. yeah. So this is what I've had to learn. I was usually the only woman at the board table back in the 80s and 90s, certainly in the 90s when I started uh, being on technology boards. But you know what I learned? It's so important to have about four real qualities. Number one is to learn to be effective in your speech. If you want somebody, you want the CEO or team to do something. Second, to be really clear. What is it? What's the vision? Third, to have a lot of knowledge about what you're talking about so you can make your points. And I think fourth and the most important, to be prepared, to understand the company, to be prepared with the board materials, to understand the machinations, financial and otherwise, the strategy and goals of the company. So that's what's important as a woman or a guy. But, you know, a lot's been written about being a woman in today's uh, man's world and yesterday's man's world. And a really interesting author, Angela Duckworth, has written about this. 
I was lucky to get a big download of two things that are really helped me through, and that's grit and resilience. You know, being pushed back, having the struggles, trying to even understand what feeds one's soul. And I love to address that for a second. Mm -hmm. I think both women and men can find personal and professional happiness by understanding what feeds one's passion, what drives one forward, what do you really want to be doing? Do you want to work on things that make a difference in the world? Then go do that because there's so much opportunity. Maybe it means taking less income than you were taking, but finding that path of what serves you and how to bring uh, products and, and all to the, to the world that could really make a difference. And I know that that's what I'm doing today, leveraging more than 25 years of business building and technology, and then taking all that knowledge around resources, around contacts, around technology, around what I can bring to the table in this cannabis sector, but at the same time, creating some wellness, changing the stigma, and really creating wealth for people. That's a lot of fun and exciting to do, as well as trying to fix some of the terrible social justice issues that uh, people of diverse uh, nature have had to struggle with, being pushed out and wanting to play in this marketplace. So it's not just a bunch of rich white men who are owning this marketplace and letting social equity programs as well as the issues around a decriminalization of the plant happen. So I love working on all those issues. What I'm hearing from, from that advice, the advice that you'd put forward for women is in what can be a largely male-dominated industry, whether it be finance or to a lesser degree, I think, cannabis. You're seeing more Correct. women in, in the industry there. But yes. yes, the advice that you have is be articulate, know where you're coming from, but but have grit and passion because no matter what, that's what's going to pull you through. I believe that's right. And, uh, and that's welcome. And I, just like cannabis, was appalled when I did the research on women. Where are the women? People would always ask me that. Where are the women? And I learned only 24 women are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. That's down. It was as high as 28. Uh, women make... 85 to 90% of the household decisions around insurance, around what our families wear, around what we buy. And it's the same in cannabis. Uh, so where are we in the decision-making power of a company in the executive uh, suite? And so we're trying to change that in the cannabis industry, but in tech and in many other fields, uh, that's been a hard struggle where men have dominated, we want to make a difference in that in this sector. With your, with your experience in business, even through the 80s, there has to be some, some stories and some, some experiences which will have definitely created the character of, of who you are today, but coming from being a woman in that business or a woman in business. Well, and probably some of them very uncomfortable. Uh, will you share those and the lessons that came from them? <laughs> There's no doubt. I've, I've seen it all and I've been through it all. But, you know, I had people that opened the door for me, that uplifted me, that promoted me, that uh, brought me in. And so I love doing that for others. Mm. And to me, that's what it's all about. People mm. 
supporting people. So I love working tirelessly for both men and women to help connect them, to help make it happen. And that's my give back. That's my thrill. And uh, so, you know, when I see and meet these fabulous uh, entrepreneurs, that's thrilling to connect them with investors or to invest in them. And so that's exciting. And it's because of those lessons learned, uh, you know, of just finding one's way, becoming knowledgeable enough to play. I think that's what it's all about. Uh, I think that uh, uh, women uh, don't deserve to get funded just because they are a woman or don't deserve to be the CEO of a company because they're a woman. They have to learn how to do that. And so that's, those are the doors I like to open, even mm. to young girls. I like to show them how understanding the STEM sciences, uh, science, technology, engineering, the finance around all that, the math around that, that's important to understand those STEM worlds. For one reason, it opens doors for opportunity. I've had that. I've had that since I was a kid. That's played well for me, and that's how I found my way. What I'm hearing and, and what I really appreciate is you, it doesn't sound by any means like you've been just given the silver spoon and the, and the keys to, uh, <laughs> to the exec room, right? And you, you've, you've fought for it, but by no means am I hearing you dwell on bad experiences. Instead, there's a focus on the good things and the good people who, because there's tons of good people out, regardless of gender, who are willing to help. And when they see, they see opportunity in an individual willing to extend the, the opportunity for them to grow. And that's, that's what I'm hearing from you. And it's, it's got nothing to do with being a woman, uh, a man, or anything else. All right, totally. And I think the other thing we didn't mention but so important is finding one's voice. Mm, and okay. so, so great leaders, both men and women, will help uplift people who are on their team and get the best out of them and help them find one's voice. And I think that's important. But the other thing I love sharing is if one ends up in a toxic situation, get out. You just mm. cannot change that many times. So, you know, I've had the privilege of actually having very few uh, organizations or firms or businesses that I've worked for. I cut my IT in the advertising world in my earliest days, which has been a great support system as an investor to learn how to package companies, to learn how to articulate go-to-market. Yeah. And then, then I got my uh, tech chops from being at AT&T and Bell Laboratories for 10 years. I do have that curiosity for learning. And so I learned the ropes and I made mistakes. And that's exciting. I think you learn from your mistakes. And then in the investing world, which opened up for me after that, I've had the opportunity to invest in more than 100 enterprise-level companies. And that, in that, I've made mistakes. I saw the smartest of the smart. I saw the stupid of the stupidest. And sometimes in the same companies. And I made those mistakes. Again, issues around early, too early for days, or with CEOs who didn't know what to do and how to do it. But I learned to spot that better, uh, got seasoned around that, both on technology and on people. And so those were some of my lessons learned. And now to leverage all that in this sector couldn't be more thrilling. And so that's what it's all about, making mistakes, but being in an environment where you can be supported 
by people around you. And, and, and again, I love sharing that because that's what helps people, you know, be their best and find their way. And that, that's just so exciting. No kidding. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting your path and your journey there. Yeah. Can we can we move back over to Arcview because you, yeah. you made some interesting points there. Yes. One one Arcview's got a you know a hell of a reputation in the industry. So I'd like to hear in your words more <laughs> about it. But then you make mention of your early experience in the the world of marketing and advertising and talking about entrepreneurs packaging companies. Yes, the, critical. There's there's a both go hand in hand. So I'd love to, to yes. go down that path. So, so let me t- Arcview. Yeah. There's a quick story on Arcview that's so fascinating to me. The founder of Arcview, a wonderful man named Troy Dayton, built Arcview, founded it more than nine years ago. Why is that? He saw the terrible social, social justice inequities. He saw people being put in jail and could not stand that. And so he founded this group because he saw before most that investors would want to convene and come together and invest and share investing ideas. One of the best stories around that is it was held in a a really great law firm in California. And the very guy who hosted it was a lawyer and his partners called him in and he said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm hosting Arcview. This is one of their first meetings as we're convening with some great, uh, interesting entrepreneurs in the business. You know what happened? They fired him. Hmm. That firm today has publicly apologized to him. This lawyer is one of the best lawyers in the U.S. around regulation and reform and the industry. And that law firm practices today in the space. So you can see the stigma's been around, but Arcview started that way. And then over the last several years, they've really built it up to be a membership organization where at least about 1,200 members have invested more than $250 million in just about every company you can think of because uh, they uh, hosted many vibrant events. And today we uh, host about five events. Already this year, Vancouver, which was so fabulous, and Santa Monica. Uh, Last week we were in Chicago. In October, a big New York event where I live. And this will be fabulous because here's where the Wall Streeters and a lot of the wealth and money is. And then in December, we go two days in Las Vegas, right before the very large MJ Biz Conference, which is where 30,000 people will be this year. And I humbly share, I got to do the keynote at that MJ Biz Conference a couple years ago, showing the very comparisons I've spoken of today, the tech world and how similar it is to the cannabis industry. So Arcview now is morphing itself from just events to being an asset management firm, bringing a number of investment platforms to bear to serve this growing group of members. So people want to invest and they want to know how to invest and they don't necessarily want to put huge amount of money in, but they want to invest some money. So we're creating both angel networks as well as funds 
I've been working on a fund and allowing people to invest behind some of the future great companies of our time because there's more and more entrepreneurism happening to fill this. And this is thrilling. So what happened is Troy Dayton found me at the MJ Biz Conference several years ago. And he said, Gene, I need you. I need classically trained people to help me find great deal flow and find more and more investors. So I've worked tirelessly to help create a vibrant group. I love my fellow colleagues in ArcView, and I really respect uh, and uh, love being around the great entrepreneurs that we find and invest behind, and that's been thrilling. So stand by for more and more, and we'll be announcing more and more, both in October and in Vegas at the big December show. So it's pretty thrilling to be part of this. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that history. Wait, I know. When it when it comes to the programs and the events that you hold. Yes. Uh, I'm picturing these very similar to angel investor events where uh, you have a group of angels and perhaps you have some select companies who come to speak with, pitch, and engage uh, these investor audiences. Is, is that what these events are? Is there more to it or how do they That's look? Right. That's right. And it's not just angel level. Many are early, but now we're seeing more and more with some really nice top line revenue and some quarter after quarter growth. So it doesn't have to be just the earliest ones. We're seeing some of these MSOs, multi-state operators, pitch. We're seeing uh, some very interesting companies come and show their story as well as talk about some of the M&A activity that has occurred. So all it's a wide variety of both content in a variety of subject matter and stage. And that's what we're going to continue to bring to the membership. So we're just thrilled. And the reason we're able to do this is you may have seen we just recently closed a funding for the core business. So two pretty interesting groups have come in. One, a terrific fund called Cresco Capital, which just recently announced the closing of a nice size fund. And uh, they see us as very relative because we can feed into them some great deal flow. Mm -hmm. And then another group, called Trivergence and Ampology here in the New York area. And they have a real track record about building membership organizations. And so more there as they plan to build bigger and better entity of ArcView. And we're all just thrilled to have this new infusion of capital to help build up because, yes, there's more and more players in the investing space, and that's good. And uh, we're in that... Uh, you know, first group of, of great platforms to play. In the Google days of the internet, there were more than 2,000 funds and various kinds of groups. And uh, so uh, today there's really just a couple dozen, and we're proud to be part of those early investing groups and, uh, and be part of the build of this industry. So what are the questions that I know listeners will want to ask especially the, I mean, the entrepreneur side of that equation would be, how can they get into ArcView? How can they attend those events? How should they approach it? And what's going to help make them stand out? Yes. So today we're looking for accredited investors who want a place 
uh, anywhere from 100,000 and up or so in the marketplace. But in the future, we see more and more ability for even uh, a crowdfunding type platform. And uh, I think one way to play is to start reading. There's some wonderful, wonderful trade publications to read. ArcView has made a name for themselves because they publish the seminal research on the industry. Mm -hmm. So all that's available. So going to the website can teach you more. And then reading some of the key trade publications are critical to learn so you know what's going on. Plus, I think it is important to follow the public marketplace. And again, here's where your countrymen have shined. The Canadian Stock Exchange has become the stock exchange for more than 150 cannabis companies, many of which are in the U.S., and most of those companies are not allowed to be on the U.S. stock exchanges yet. Some are, but not many. Mm -hmm. Going to the CSE, which is what stands for Canadian Stock Exchange, uh, and we know the principles of that exchange, they've done a great job of uh, creating access to capital for these companies. So reading about those are very very positive ways to learn what's going on in the marketplace and understand what's happening. And then, uh, you know, I'll just say it this way, to be part of what's going on at ArcView, I would love for anyone to, to reach me by email or whatever. If you want to make that available, happy to do so. Great. And I'll, I'll do lead, that. I'll lead your listeners to victory on that because we want a diverse and strong audience who wants to invest who wants to learn, and heck, who wants to be part of these companies. Let's say you want to be on the team. Let's say you're a medical practitioner and you want to become certified to recommend cannabis products. Let's say you want to play as a scientist. Well, we love connecting people, and that's exciting, and we're happy to do that, and that's what goes on at our events. And, I, you know, you, you touched on the Canadian Securities Exchange. Yes. And, uh, and then also, I mean, we've got the TSX Venture, which is, um, right. uh, to a lesser degree, participating in the space. How, from an investment side, how do you view those publicly listed companies? I mean, a lot of traditional VCs and angels don't like touching public ventures, let alone uh, perhaps ventures that have uh, what could be viewed as, as uh, very open cap tables and things like that. So what's your take on that as, as being a, a publicly listed entity? Is that still attractive to you or is it more just the fact that you could see an exit there? No, it's attractive to me because that's one way I've continued to learn. And it is true that these public stock offerings and companies, they're very volatile, but some are undervalued today. And because I go to and attend so many conferences, I come to learn and know the companies that do have a lot of growth possibilities and are undervalued today. So I do invest in the public markets in Canada, and uh, I follow them, uh, and uh, they are way off right now this month. Something called the Canaccord Genuity Index is off 17% just for the month. And so they're volatile and they go up and down, but 
uh, today is this time is a positive time to look for some undervalued stocks. So just by doing the traditional research, you can find some great companies. And again, by going to conferences, reading and understanding. So I think it's important to, to look at those. And the TSX, which is a you know really extraordinary exchange, they will not allow US uh, technology, US cannabis companies to be listed there. That's why the CSE has all these companies. And so uh, they do allow some of the great Canadian companies to list there. And boy, that's a great way. All that information is public. And so that's a good place to continue to learn. And uh, so I think that's important. Let me segue, though, to something related. And that's what's okay. going on in private markets. See, the private uh, companies today. Certainly, that's where a lot of upside exists. I'm going to pick up a thread you've asked about, and okay. that's what's hot and going on in those companies. Who are the companies to look to today in the private markets? Well, one one place are these brands. We're seeing more and more celebrity brands around both CBD mm. and adult use products. Celebrities standing behind these brands, putting their name on them. Uh, what about uh, testing platforms? Testing's critical. And I'm shocked to tell you that some states don't even demand testing of products. And believe me, Health Canada is in Canada is very, very precise about testing uh, and how important it is. Uh, but in the U.S., more and more testing platforms are needed. Again, just think about it. If you can't send products across state lines, how do you have some of the great testing products test your product? Mm -hmm. So those testing platforms are expanding into various states. Uh, extraction technologies. Uh, again, starting with Canada. Uh, Canada now is able to go from just flour to tinctures and oils, and now starting in December to some of the edible products. So more and more extraction technologies are important, and that uh, we're seeing vast changes in. What about distribution, both business-to-business -business as well as B2C distribution platforms? And then supply chain platforms. If Canada can export, which they can, and other companies can import, where are the technology platforms to manage that? Another area would be marketing platforms for customer acquisition so that uh, certainly dispensaries in the U.S. want more and more customers in their state. How do they acquire those? So there's just a few bullet points around some of the hot private companies that I think are worthy of attention. Wow. It's, <laughs> I love the focus. Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. not, not even a, a discussion of flour. Uh, and, and yeah. So much the cultivation, but all the periphery all right. industries that are benefiting. Right. That's right. Yeah. Now, I, I want to be respectful of your time and perhaps aim to, to wrap up with a question uh, along helping entrepreneurs and CEOs finance their businesses. Is there anything else that we could, you'd like to leave with them? When it comes to, uh, I mean, you've spoken of so many things about knowing the details of when, when, you, uh, when you're reaching out to investors, but what else would they, would they need to know or should they know before going and knocking on your door at Arcview or in the past? Sure. So I really feel that in today's world now, 
2019 with all the vibrancy of what's going on. Now there are plenty of experienced investors and entrepreneurs out there. Seek that mentorship. Seek somebody who can advise you how to package your business to be able to aptly describe what's going on and then to connect with angel investors to get started. There are many, many and a growing number. And now there's more and more angel groups out there. Certainly, ArcView is one of those. But uh, I think it's important to hook into those and to find your way. And uh, so that, that's critical to get going. But it's also critical to find the experienced entrepreneur who can help you uh, uh, weave the path towards victory. And victory means getting that early stage financing to get to an MVP, a minimum viable product. I laughingly tell people, you're just a team, a dream, a PowerPoint, and a dog. Uh, when it's just, <laughs> thank you for laughing because that's the laugh I was hoping to get. Well, I can picture it. Yes, I've, yes. I've seen that. Yeah, it's then, very true. And you know what I say to them? You don't even have a dog. So I, <laughs> I encourage entrepreneurs to get to that MVP so they have a real working product or platform. Uh, if that's what they're building, maybe one customer who's willing to pilot it, if it's a tech platform or a product that they're producing or inventing. And if they're a cultivator looking for a license to have their plan and program figured out, I am helping some people get funding pre-licensed, but that's very hard to do. So once you get a license, or maybe you get an automatic, uh, you get an investment, but you offer to return the investment if the license doesn't come through. So there's some few tricks along the way that you need to understand. But what's great, there's plenty of advisory and mentors out there that can help you find one's way. And hey, if you need one of those, ask me, I'll connect you. Awesome. Well, I think we'll definitely, I'll, I'll put your uh, contact info in there and uh, add links to, to your bio and to, to ArcView and everything else. Uh, one thing that I, I need to jump on there is finding an advisor, finding that mentorship, that leadership you need to help push through and get financing often comes with the request of, well, I'll do it for options or I'll do it for, for some warrants and, and an interest in your company. What should, how, as a, as a rule of thumb for somebody starting out at the very early stage, how big should that, that uh, incentive package be for somebody to help them out? Okay, fair question. Now, the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., really frowns upon paying a success fee. So unless you're a broker-dealer licensed to do so, and there's plenty of people out there uh, both good people and people to be careful about who are interested in that. But if it's just a casual support system, there's nothing wrong with being an advisor and getting some options and warrants. And that is all over the place based on what you can contribute. But it's that is allowed. Uh, what's not allowed is a success fee unless you are licensed to do so. And, you know, it does range. Uh, uh, as a uh, you know, uh, 
percentage and, and usually not a large percentage. So, uh, you know, Are we talking single digits in your experience? Single, and, and Single digits, yes. And yes. what side of that, like, are we talking 1%, 2% or 7%, I mean? Uh, no, 7%, 8% way too much. That is what a real broker-dealer often asks for. But for a casual support system, it's 1% or half a point, half of 1%, based, again, on what they can accomplish or if they're going to be an ongoing advisor. And if they are an ongoing advisor, those options should be vested over a period of time, maybe three to four years, just like one's employees, because you don't want them to take your options and then run away with them. Yeah. So I think that's what's fair. Thanks for, for, for saying that. It's often, well, it's nice to hear it in other people's words. Uh, you know, yes. it's yeah. a broker dealer might take six, seven, eight percent for, for early stage money they're helping raise. But That's for those right. those advisors, yes. I mean it shouldn't at times shouldn't even be into a, a percentage. It should That's be less right. than that. Because right. what I argue and, and often see is people forget about how easy it is to just hand out capital in, in a form of shares and it comes to bite you later on. So totally. that. that's a big mistake, really big mistake. But also one of the joys of this, if let's say you're supporting a CEO, maybe you'd like to be part of the team. Maybe your future role is head of sales or head of marketing or an ops person. So it's a great way to see if this is a good connection with the kind of culture and leadership that one would like. So I encourage that kind of you know, connection and, and, and time to work together, especially if you're drawn to the business and the sector. Excellent. Well, looking at time, I, I want to just take, uh, take a minute to say thank you so much for, well, helping prepare for this call and then also for sharing so much information. I, I can't wait to get this out into, uh, into the, to the public domain. Corey, thank you for this opportunity. Really Absolutely. enjoyed it. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.